We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. Do you know any theologians? Turn around and look at each other for a moment. You're looking at one. Because theology is a person's belief about God. That's what theology means. One's study or one's belief about God. And every single person has some belief, some assumption, some idea of who God is. Doesn't matter who. You could be an agnostic. You have a theology. You could be an atheist. You have a theology. You could have a different religion. You have a theology. You could be a born-again Christian. You, too, have a theology. Everyone has a theological perspective. It's what we believe about God. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, we have a very interesting story about Jesus and his encounter with a theologian. Though we don't typically think of him as a theologian, we typically think of him as a thief, a thief on a cross. But what's amazing is in a few verses, he gives one of the clearest, most insightful theological statements the thief does about a number of issues. It's really quite amazing. The thief on the cross has a theology about the cross as he is there being crucified with Jesus on that day. In my library, I have between 65 and 75 volumes just on the subject of theology. And I've noticed that some theologians are very verbose. They have a lot of words to say about a lot of subjects. But when you're giving your last few breaths, you have to distill it into something very succinct. This is who I am. This is now what I have come to believe. And actually, the thief on the cross or can we call him the theologian on the cross, gives an incredible theology, sometimes more insightful than those who write volumes about it. I'm reading in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ... Save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke, the author of this book, tells us that these two men next to Jesus were criminals. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, the word is translated there, robbers or thieves. But I don't want you to think that these are just some petty criminals like they picked up chewing gum or stole an iPhone at the store. These were evil working men. That's the literal translation of the word here that is used, kokurgas, means evil workers, those who spend their mental energy and their physical energy thinking of ways to do evil. These were rebels. These were insurrectionists. And how do we know that? Because the word is a strong word, but also who was that cross that Jesus hung on? Who was supposed to be there? Barabbas. And Barabbas was a known rebel, a known insurrectionist. And they were probably part of that gang. But it's an amazing thing that there at the cross hangs Jesus Christ. And we commemorate him on this Good Friday. Jesus hanging on that cross next to two of the worst people ever. Jesus died like he lived. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was even judged wrongly by those who noticed that Jesus hung out with the worst kind of people. So it's only fitting that at his death, Jesus also would be crucified next to two thieves. What we have here in this little tiny set of verses is a conversion, a salvation story. Call it a foxhole conversion. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark fills in the story that Luke leaves out. It tells us that at the beginning when the crucifixion began and Jesus was hung there and the two criminals next to him, it says that both of them, not one of them, both of them was, were mocking Jesus. The language of those Gospels says, even those who were crucified with Jesus reviled him. So not one of them, but both of them were hurling insults at Jesus, sneering at him, saying words of opposition to him. But somewhere along the line, as the minutes ticked on, as the minutes turned into hours, one of them had second thoughts. And one of them dared out loud to say to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus made him an incredible promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Did you know that there is no more explicit assurance in the Bible from the lips of Jesus Christ himself to any individual of the forgiveness of their sins and the assurance of heaven than what we just read? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, how could he say it to a, a thief, a criminal, an evil working person? 
Was that thief baptized? Did that thief join a connect group? Was that thief able to tithe and do good works and live a good life? No, he was about to die. But Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. But now, in the moments we have before communion, I want to examine this thief's theology. If you ever take a theology course, you'll discover that it is divided up into sections. Theology, the study of God. Anthropology, what the Bible says about mankind. Christology, what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Soteriology, how's that for a word? It means the study or the knowledge about salvation itself. Eschatology, the study of end times or last things. And this thief has something to say on all of those subjects. First of all, according to this thief in his theology, God is holy. Because he turns to the man reviling Jesus, even though they both started out that way, he turns to him and he says, do you not even fear God? So this thief, this criminal, has a basic grasp of the holiness and righteousness of God. That God is somebody who ought to be feared, ought to be revered, ought to be respected. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, it just begs to be asked this question. How is it that within minutes he has changed his mind? How is it that within minutes he goes from opposing Christ with his other buddy to now opposing the opposition to Christ and thinking it's absolutely absurd to oppose Christ? Well, he's about to die, isn't he? You know, finality has a way of changing your theology. When you know you're about to die, everything changes. People can have smart and clever ideas about life and about God and about meaning and about purpose. But when they're at the end of their life, they think differently. Plato, the great philosopher, said no one ever died an atheist. Or as the old saying we have, that... There's no atheist in a foxhole. When you're at the end of your life, when you're staring down the barrel of a gun, those people will often who have rejected God cry out to God in that moment. And this criminal knows that he is about to die. I was sharing this very story some years ago in a local hospital to a man who wanted nothing to do with Christ his whole life. He had heard the message, rejected it, didn't care about Jesus, didn't care about the... Bible stories, but he had an aggressive form of cancer, and I went to visit him. And I read this story to him. I told it, the story to him. And as I told the story to him, he had two days left to live, come to find out. He started weeping. He started changing. He started thinking differently. And before he died, he asked Jesus to save him of his sins. And so this thief understands God is holy. There's something else that this thief understands. He has not only a biblical theology, but he understands that we are guilty. So God is holy. Mankind is guilty. For he says this. Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, 
But this man has done nothing wrong. Did you hear that? By his own admission, this criminal says, I am a guilty sinner and I deserve to die. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. He made a confession. I am guilty. Now, that's important. Why is it important? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount began the Sermon on the Mount this way. You're familiar with it. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. The first step to God is to realize you are poor, bankrupt, poverty stricken, spiritually speaking. You have nothing to offer God. It's only by his favor, only by his grace that you could ever get anywhere with God. So you come bankrupt, poor. And this man exhibits a poverty of spirit when he admits we deserve what we are getting. Oftentimes I discover that when people are at the end of their life, they look back and they have regrets. I shouldn't have done this. I should have done things differently. I've stood at many hospital beds where people have made the confession. I wish I had to do all over again, but they don't. It's the end of their life. This man at the end of his life, knowing that he has moments, maybe hours left to live, admits that he is guilty. Now, both of these truths go together, that God is holy and that I am guilty. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet had a vision. In chapter 6, he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his temple, train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each having six wings, and one cried to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It was an incredible vision of how holy God is. And then, after seeing the vision... Isaiah the prophet said, and so I said, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. In seeing God, Isaiah then saw himself. And he looked up and went, wow. And he looked at himself and went, woe. And the wow and the woe go together. Wow is God, woe is me. God is holy, I am not. God is holy, I am guilty. Peter made that discovery when he was on a boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was on the boat. Jesus calmed the storm. He had been asleep. The disciples woke him up. They were afraid for their lives. Jesus just looked at the water and said, peace be still. Boom, done. And Peter did not say, now that was cool. Or, man, I love it when you do that, Jesus. Do that again. Peter, in seeing, wow, I am with somebody who can control nature. He then realized who he was as a man. And Peter's first words were, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. In seeing God, he saw himself. The wow led to the woe. This thief on the cross has an amazing theology and a biblical anthropology. God is holy. We are guilty. And so he does something very gutsy. 
Keep in mind the crowd is sneering at Jesus, blaspheming Jesus, the common people, the leaders, even that other thief, even himself, he was doing that. So he does a gutsy move out loud in front of the crowd on his deathbed. He says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. You know, it would have been much easier to just be quiet. It would have been much easier to go with the flow rather than against the flow. But this criminal doesn't do that. Even if that guy, that other guy, that other criminal was his closest friend, he says to the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm worried if I come to Jesus Christ what my friends are going to say. I'm really worried if I give myself to Jesus and live like a born-again Christian, what my friends are going to think, what my circle of friends. Listen, first of all, if they're your friends, they'll be glad you're going to heaven. Friends don't let friends go to hell. Second, when you die and you're judged, you won't be judged by those friends. You'll only stand before one person, that's God himself. And what you did with Jesus is the most important thing you could ever do. So don't worry about your friends. If they're your friends, they'll be happy. If they're not happy, get new friends. So, God is holy. We are guilty. He has a biblical theology. He has a biblical anthropology, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about man. There's a third level to his theology. Again, all of this is just in a couple of sentences. We understand that he believed Jesus Christ had authority. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice he calls him Lord. He didn't say, hey, you, other guy, other criminal. He didn't call him a criminal, doesn't call him a blasphemer like the crowd is. Doesn't say, hey, you. He says, Lord. He recognizes his lordship. Here he is on the cross dying, and this thief, this theologian, recognizes that there is a God who deserves to be feared, that we are guilty and we deserve to die, and this man has done nothing wrong and deserves not to be here. All of that is implied and stated in these sentences. He recognized he's the Lord. But not only that, he recognized he's the king. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your what? Your kingdom. Only kings have kingdoms. Now, I don't know if it, he was looking up at the sign that was on the cross that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he's processing that very quickly. Other people said he's the king, the Messiah. All the Jews believe Messiah was coming. He's going to set up a kingdom eventually. But for the thief on that cross to say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom shows that in those moments he began to believe that this Jesus who is dying with him is going to live after he dies. And in that new life, be able to enter into a kingdom as a ruler. It's an incredible statement. So he has a biblical theology. He has a biblical anthropology. He has a biblical Christology, who Jesus is. And he has a biblical eschatology, what's going to happen in the kingdom age. Amazing. Very astute theologian. So he believes God is holy. We are guilty. Jesus has authority. 
pretty good for a criminal on a cross, isn't it? There's a fourth level in his theological statement. He believed that we must believe personally. That it's not enough to just know theology, but I must act personally. Because he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now he has a biblical soteriology. That means doctrine of salvation. I believe that when I know right facts about Jesus, I then have to have right acts toward Jesus. There's things I need to act on and do. Remember me. You know, when it comes to salvation, there's no two-for-one deal. You can't say, well, you know, my wife comes to church, and she believes, and she gives, and so I just kind of think, you know, when I die, I'll be covered by her. You won't. There's no family package like Disneyland, even though they call that the magic kingdom. It's not. You have to come personally. And this thief said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We always say it this way. God has no grandchildren, only children. You won't get in because your parents believe. You personally, like this thief on the cross, this theologian on the cross, need to say, Lord, remember me. The Bible says, he came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. He came to his own nation. They rejected him. But, it goes on to say, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Individually. Personally. Think of the opportunity these two criminals had dying next to Jesus. They're on their deathbed and Jesus is next to them on their deathbed. What an opportunity. Two men equally close to Christ. One is saved, the other is lost. One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. Both with the exact same opportunity. One blaspheming, both blaspheming. One turns and changes, repents in the middle of the act of crucifixion and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, you could say, you know, that thief didn't know very much. I mean, he knew Jesus was from Nazareth. He knew his name was Jesus. But he knew enough. He knew that there's a holy God who has been offended. He knows that we as humans are sinful people. He knows that Jesus is sinless and is Lord and King. And he knows that I need to put my faith in him. And therefore, Jesus said with all authority... Today, this day, you're going to die. You're going to physically die. But today, after your death, you're going to live on. And I'm going to bring you with me into my kingdom. An incredible promise of Jesus. Now, most of us here are believers. We're celebrating this wonderful service of Good Friday and about to take communion. But maybe some of you have been invited by friends or relatives, or maybe you've come a long time and you've never given your heart to Jesus personally. You've acknowledged certain things about God, but you haven't turned to God personally. You've acknowledged Jesus lived on the earth and said some marvelous things and changed lots of people's lives, including family members that you're seated next to. But you personally have never said, Lord, here am I. Lord, remember me. 
Lord, save me. I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a moment. I just want you to bow your head for a moment as we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that on the cross we see an incredible example of what you intended the whole world to be able to do. To escape hell and enter heaven, to enter your kingdom after this earth, to be with you in paradise. You granted that man that incredible promise. And that becomes an example to what you want to do with anybody who will make a simple declaration and act of faith in this Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would touch people around here right now at this Good Friday service. Seated here in this amphitheater and in the park next to us, thousands have gathered. But Lord, you see us as individuals. You know our name. You know the things that concern us. You love us. You have a plan for us. We pray that some more will believe. Our heads are bowed. But if you have not personally come to Christ, if you've never personally given Him your heart, I want you to do that right now. And if if you desire to have your sins forgiven or you need to come back to Him, I want you just to raise your hand in the air. I'm not going to have you come forward this morning. We're going to take communion. But just raise your hand in the air just so I can see your hand. I see hands around the around this uh, amphitheater. If you're in the park, raise your hand up. Just acknowledge that you need the Lord. Raise it up. Now, right now, say this to him. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my heart. You know my sins. I admit I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe in Jesus. I believe he came from heaven to earth. I believe he died on a cross for me personally. I turn from my sin. I turn to Jesus as my Savior. Help me to follow him as my Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. 